1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Goddesses in Greek Myth, with Natalie Haynes, and her new book, Divine Mind. Natalie Haynes is a writer and broadcaster. She has written numerous novels and numerous works of non-fiction, every single one of which we've talked about on previous Little Atoms. In 2015, she was awarded the Classical Association Prize for her work in bringing classics to a wider audience. And today we're going to talk about Natalie's latest book, Divine Might, Goddesses in Greek Myth. Natalie, welcome back.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. I can't believe we're managing to retain this total 100% record. I thought for sure I'd have antagonised you too much by this point, but no, turns out not.
1: No, indeed, indeed. Most of the novels, and certainly Pandora's Jar, the last work of non-fiction, were, I guess, primarily about resuscitating Women of Greek myths from the, um, the the dirty that had been done to them by both various original writers and poets and scribes and later academics um, yes. but this one is about goddesses who yes. are um, you know can basically stand on their own two feet so um, what's the idea behind this one?
0: Well, I kind of thought it would be interesting to write a companion book to Pandora's jar because when I sort of set out to write Pandora, I was still really choosing which female characters I would cover as I went along. I know it's not like me, because when I started out as a writer, I had programmed everything in advance, and then basically I just wrote it really carefully. And by the time I got to Pandora, I was like, ah, who do I fancy writing about next? Woo, child murderers, et cetera. So I'd got a bit cavalier, I think, in terms of the super intense programmatic approach to it. And I think it's, it's probably a better book for it. You know, it has more life in it, I would guess, because of that. And so when it came to doing Divine Might, I sort of thought, well, you know, there was a, there was a question about whether or I would just do a second volume of Pandora, basically, with more women from Greek myths. And it's like, well, why wouldn't I do goddesses? Why wouldn't I do the sort of super powerful ones? Because as you say, they obviously have the, the power and strength to take their revenge on anyone who doesn't pay them due heed. Look at what Aphrodite does to Hippolytus and Euripides' play Hippolytus, reworked obviously by Racine and others as Phaedr. But I sort of felt we'd kind of missed out a bit, that there were really powerful goddesses and ancient sources who'd become little more than kind of cliched tropes in the modern world. So I don't remember anyone ever really talking about the power of, for example, the muses, without whom ancient poets knew perfectly well that you couldn't compose a poem, you know, or create a song or a dance or that you had to appeal to the muses and get them to help you but in the 20th century of course or by the 20th century I guess I should say muses were just you know a pretty lady who a male painter or artist found inspirational and it's like well hang on a minute I see a little transfer of power happening there from a female goddess to a male mortal human being and then I kind of felt like there were more and more examples like that and That there were things like you know Hera, who is such a a mighty force in ancient Greek society. The temples to Hera are absolutely enormous, but we tend to see her as sort of like a stroppy kind of Sybil faulty type character who's always you know yelling at her husband and persecuting pretty young women. It's like, well, why does someone behave like that? You go back to the Iliad and you see that she is the victim of coercive control. That Zeus explicitly threatens her with violence when he wants to do something that he knows she won't like. And in the Iliad, that's a particularly egregious example, because in theory, they should be on the same side. You know, Hera is deeply pro-Greek. She hates the Trojans, she loves the Greeks. And Zeus knows perfectly well that by the time the Trojan War is over, it'll be the Greeks who are victorious, spoiler, and yet somehow they still manage to argue, and he still manages to threaten her. So even when they're pulling in the same direction, the aggression is is always directed at her, and I thought, well, what happens if you look at her like that as somebody who is is constantly trying to dodge the coercion and violence and gaslighting of a deeply toxic husband and she suddenly made a lot more sense to me, so partly it was a an effort to reclaim women from stereotypes. you know Aphrodite is much more ruthless in the ancient world rather than the sort of hearts and flowers idea of Venus that we probably have now, but I didn't want to you know look at. Aphrodite, without looking at how she's been interpreted by, amongst others, you know, Lady Gaga. I didn't want to look at how Artemis had been received in classical reception without considering Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games. And so I basically just had a really lovely time reading and watching things that I was interested in anyway, and considering how goddesses might have changed through time and through, obviously, in classical reception in the last kind of 250, years of study and talking about and writing about and creating new art about the classics, these goddesses have necessarily been diminished because that, a lot of that reception has happened in Europe. And Europe has been a Christian country with no goddesses doing a huge amount of getting a huge amount of airtime. I guess. So, you know, it just seemed worthwhile to me to say, well, what happens if you look at powerful female deities in a time before we have this notion that gods have to be male?
1: And also obviously these goddesses, despite how powerful they might have been, were all obviously I was gonna say written. Written's obviously not the correct word initially, but you know, created, formulated, described, yes, told all by these. men. Yeah. Um, so I guess how different might they have been if well, actually no, let's not say how different might they have been if they'd been created by women. Let's say how might they have described themselves?
0: I mean, it's a question, isn't it? And the the real irritation for classicists and historians is that we do know there are religions where goddesses are worshipped by women. And so we know these kind of cults as they're often described, but even that, of course, could be construed as a diminishing term and perhaps religion is more appropriate in the context. The trouble is, of course, that our male writers and almost everything that comes to us from the ancient world was written by a man. There are a few, of course, uh, glorious exceptions like Sappho, who writes beautiful poetry to Aphrodite. But the trouble is that the men, of course, have no idea what's going on in these sacred rites where women gather to worship goddesses. So they tend to be considered by us as like mystery religions. And therefore the whole thing is secret. <laughs> we can't know. are like, oh no. <laughs> we really needed that. That would really help. So yeah, we, we often don't get that. I think probably your question is is a hard one to answer because sometimes we find goddesses at odds with one another. So in the example I used earlier of Aphrodite versus Artemis over the, the soon to be dead body of Hippolytus in the Euripides play, you know, one goddess wants a young man to worship her fully and completely, i.e. to give in to desire for sex. And uh, the other goddess loves that he doesn't because she, Artemis, is herself virginal And so that seems fully appropriate. And, you know, the only outcome of this is dead people at the end. When when gods argue, goddesses argue, um, it never goes well for human beings, I don't think. But perhaps a more interesting example is that of the Eumenides, which is a play by Aeschylus. And it's the third play in the Oresteia. And Orestes, for those of you who haven't done all your homework, Orestes has killed his mother, Clytemnestra, because Clytemnestra had killed his father, Agamemnon, because Agamemnon had killed their daughter, Uh, Iphigenia. And so she considers this a life for a life. Uh, Agamemnon dies because Iphigenia dies. Orestes feels differently. He considers his action to be a life for a life. Clytemnestra must die because Agamemnon has died. His sister doesn't seem to enter his accounting of this very much. And then the Furies, who are vengeance goddesses, pursue Orestes across Greece, you know, in, in a constant pursuit wearing themselves and him out until eventually he comes to Athens and begs Athene to defend him and hear his case. And she stands in judgment. The, the Furies make their case, the case for the prosecution, that he is a matricidal lunatic and deserves to be you know, driven to suicide. And he and uh, Orestes and Apollo make the defence case, which is that he was under a religious obligation to take revenge for his father's murder. And it's Athene who stands in judgment. And she and the Furies therefore are at odds for a lot of this play. And yet, what's really interesting is the way that Athene speaks to them relative to the way Apollo speaks to them in the same play. Apollo is very quick to highlight what he considers to be the kind of disgusting appearance of them. He calls them, they're like ancient children. So they're all kind of wrinkly and horrible, we can presume. And they're ugly, and he hates them. And if he hates them, then everyone must hate them. When Athene meets them, she doesn't have disgust or express disgust at all. She's curious and reverent towards them. She says, you know, I know you're really powerful because you're really old gods, but I'm not stupid either. You know, uh, Zeus gave me no small share of brains, so maybe we can work this out. And although she finds against them, she finds in favor of Orestes and he is allowed to go free, she manages to be so thoughtful and reverent and tactful that in fact the Furies give up their persecution. They don't persecute the Athenians for taking part in what they believe is a a terrible sham trial. They agree to make their home in Athens and look after the Athenians to become goddesses who support somewhere rather than just goddesses who punish. So again, of course, all this is framed within a, a story that's told to us by a male playwright, by Aeschylus. It would have been all these roles, male and female, would have been formed by men. And the audience at the Dionysia the festival when it was first seen, very probably just men. But you know what, classicist feminists have to take what we can get, and this is what there is.
1: I did mean to write a question about this, but I've I completely forgot. So you've reminded me and you're gonna to have to fill in the gaps here in it, but um you mentioned a few times in the book there's one particular um mystery religion mentioned.
0: Yes, there are. There are um, actually there are quite a few mystery religions lurking around, but there's a particular one, the the Eleusinian mysteries. Yes, yes,
1: that's the one. So what? So what? Yeah. So tell us what the um, Eleusinian mysteries were. Well,
0: I could tell you. I mean, what you can because obviously we don't know. (laughs) Yeah. No. Exactly. This is the worship of Demeter. Demeter is the goddess of agriculture. Um, of the plants that sustain us, essentially. So not all the plants. She's not Mother Earth. That's Gaia, but uh, the harvest and the crops. That's Demeter's thing. And so you would think, I think probably that she would be quite a a sort of I don't know, like a kind of harvest festival-y type goddess. That it would all be very light and bright and wholesome. And that's that seems pretty likely. But of course, the thing that perhaps lots of people know about Demeter, is that she has to take herself through a period of unimaginable grief, because her daughter, Persephone, is kidnapped by her uncle, by Demeter's brother, Hades. And Persephone is taken down to the underworld, uh, trafficked, as I would say, kidnapped and trafficked. And she's forced into marriage. And Demeter hears her daughter cry out. And I know that this is a story which has taken on layers and layers of really, grotty kind of goth romance and you know how gothy I am but this is it's just really unacceptable to me I'm afraid that it's like oh it's so romantic Hades loves her so much no no he doesn't he kidnaps her and he takes her to the underworld against her will. Uh, One of our earliest sources for this story, the Homeric Hymn to Demeter, it's a really early ancient Greek source um, and a long narrative poem, makes it absolutely clear the language is unequivocal. It's against her will. She's crying out. She's very much unwilling. This isn't a romantic story of a god who just loves too much. This is a terrifying story of a much older and more powerful god conspiring with other gods to kidnap a young woman. And so Demeter is then suddenly aware that something terrible has happened to her daughter because she hears her daughter crying as she's kidnapped and Demeter hears that Persephone cries right up until she actually enters into the underworld because while she can still see the sky she's hopeful of being heard and Demeter undergoes this incredibly distressing ritual of searching for her daughter and trying to find out what's happened you know a missing child is is pretty much the worst thing most of us can imagine happening to a parent i think And so she searches night and day with torches to light her way. And it takes nine days before she gets any news from anybody, before finally a goddess turns around and says, you know what, I didn't see it, but I heard it. And it was this, it was Hades kidnapping her. And then Helios, the sun god, they go together to ask him, because he's the sun, he sees everything. And he says, Oh, well, you know, yes, actually, Hades did take her down into the underworld. But, you know, he's a really respectable groom for your daughter. And, you know, the idea of consent being asked is is nowhere in this story. And if that sounds like me being anachronistic, I should tell you that when Ovid has one of the nymphs in this story tell it in the Metamorphoses, she says you know, to Hades, I'm not letting you into the underworld with this young girl, you should have asked her mother's permission to marry her, and you should have asked her permission. So it's not that anachronistic, you know, 2000 years ago, somebody was asking the question of why didn't you ask them? Why didn't you get permission? And so the the story of Demeter's religious worship, the Eleusinian mistress, she goes, uh, having been on this trip night and day to try and find Persephone, she withdraws from Mount Olympus. Um, she tells you she wants Persephone back and he basically tells her to accept what's happened. And so she withdraws to a place called Eleusis on the mainland of Greece. And she spends time there sort of disguised as a normal person. It's not very convincing, at least according to the Homeric hymn, she's so tall that her head is nearly touching the ceiling. So she doesn't, she's not the perfect mistress of disguise at this point. But because she has this connection with a specific location, with Eleusis, and because of this terrible night and day, light and darkness um, searching that she, she undergoes, and because when she eventually gets Persephone partly restored to her, it's only for sort of two thirds of the year that for some of the year, Persephone will always have to return to the underworld, thanks to Hades' deceit and cruelty. So this goddess of agriculture, this wholesome goddess, is always associated with something quite a lot darker, not least because in order to get Persephone back at all, she has to cause a famine that lasts a year before the gods will listen and realize that they're going to end up with no worshippers if they don't sort things out with her. So she is always, always, always associated with both light and darkness. And the Eleusinian mysteries appear to have been practiced, perhaps, in darkness. And they appear to have involved torches, which perhaps are only happening because it's dark, but perhaps might also be reminiscent of Demeter searching for Persephone through the nights holding torches. She's depicted on vase paintings in that way. Um, it seems to be the case that they drink a particular kind of wine. Again, we're told in the Homeric hymn that Demeter gives the Eleusinians the recipe. It involves herbs, grain, water, wine. It sounds Absolutely horrible. (laughs) But apparently, that is part of it. And so, I wish I could tell you a lot more than that. But I'm afraid ancient sources are extremely cautious about this. And we do often find somebody telling us that they can't tell us any more about this mystery cult because it's, you know, it would be blasphemous. And so, yes, unfortunately for us, blasphemy prevents us from finding out a lot more. But we can reasonably safely assume, I think, that it involves uh, making certain kinds of sacrifice in order to achieve a good harvest uh, in the long term, not least because that's how the Homeric hymn ends, with the poet wishing that Demeter and Persephone will look on him kindly.
1: listening to little atoms i'm neil denny today i'm talking to natalie haynes about her new book divine might goddesses in greek myth and you just raised something that i wanted to ask you which is that a lot of our old friends crop up in this book our pseudo apollodoruses et (laughs) etc
0: i know who's your favorite
1: but um i don't think i'd ever noticed if you have mentioned them before homeric hymns um so what are they
0: well, they are a set of, I mean, we call them a set, uh, I, I should say. There's no, we, we don't know who the author is, as is so often the case. Pseudo-Apollodorus wasn't once called Pseudo-Apollodorus. We once thought that the text of Apollodorus that we had was by someone called Apollodorus, and then we realized that it probably wasn't. And so we had the pseudo to the beginning. And there's also Pseudo-Higinus and other pseudos. So yes, we're always a little bit shaky about quite a lot of authorship, I think it's fair to say. Um, even authors that we know lots about, like you know Euripides or Aeschylus, there are plays where people aren't sure whether that person wrote it or it was actually written by their son or one of their followers. And so, you know, we have this, we have these layers of confusion. But the Homeric Hymns are early; they're written in uh, a nice. So we, we do know that bit that they seem to be around for a long time, roughly contemporaneous with the composing or writing of the Iliad and the Odyssey, maybe. Uh, the thing about them, which is fascinating, is that although they're not all very long, um, some of them are just a few lines. There's one to Hestia that I think is only four or six lines long, incredibly brief. But some of them are expansive narrative texts. And um, the Homeric Hymn to Demeter is just such a one. So it tells the whole story of Demeter and Persephone in incredible detail. And you're right, I haven't really written about it before. I read it when I was at college. And I hadn't read it since then. And I found myself wondering what the hell I'd been doing with my time instead when I came back to it. I was like, God, this is incredible, this poem. Why wasn't I reading it before? But it's also a poem just to give you an idea of how lucky classicists have to be to have the text that we have. You know, people ask me often about lost text, you know, what would I like back that's been lost since the ancient world? Of course, you know, we have three poems and fragments from Sappho who once had nine books of lyric poetry. Of course, I want the rest of Sappho back. Of course, I want, you know, Aristotle's Poetics on Comedy. I want all of it. But there are times when you have to be incredibly grateful for what we have. And the Homeric Hymn to Demeter is just such an occasion. It was believed lost for centuries. And every single version of it that we have all stem from the discovery of a single manuscript, which was apparently in archives in Moscow, but then was found apparently by a man in a pigsty <laughs> in uh, Russia. And it was surrounded by pigs and chickens. And so there are moments when the manuscript is uh, degraded, shall we say, <laughs> um, and, uh, and papyrologists have had to sort of guess what's happened. So when uh, Persephone comes back from the underworld, um, we can't read the bit where Demeter says, did you eat anything when you were there? But we know that she must ask that because the reply is, that Hades has force-fed her a pomegranate seed. Again, I know this is a a story which has been much romanticised, in part thanks to Robert Graves, but plenty of other sources in which, you know, Persephone greedily eats pomegranate seeds while she's in the underworld and thus is responsible for her own continuing imprisonment. Uh, No, I'm afraid, in this very early source, Hades tricks her and tricks Hermes, who's been sent by Zeus to extract her from the underworld. He says, yes, of course, she can go to Hermes, And then he force feeds Persephone pomegranate seeds, knowing that this will mean she has to come back. Uh, In other sources, there are versions where she eats, but only because she hasn't been told that she would have to come back. So one way or another, there's either forcing or trickery involved. So much so, I might add, that there's uh, one version of the story where uh, somebody snitches on her. And says, Oh, she ate while she was down here. And Demeter is so annoyed that she crushes the guy under a big rock. <laughs> I always think people don't think of a nice agriculture goddess as being the crushing someone under a big rock kind of. It's quite a Hulk smash moment for Demeter, but I really like it about her. Um, so yes, the Homeric hymns have had this extremely twisty route to get to us and they're not, they're not read very often. Like I say, I, I hadn't read the Homeric hymn to Demeter for like 25 years or something ridiculous. So. Uh, 20 years, certainly. So I'm really, really glad I got to look at it in detail for the story of Demeter. I've done a a Radio 4 episode, an episode of Stand Up for the Classics on Demeter, which is just based on the version of the story in the Homeric Hymn. And that'll be out in November, I think, November this year.
1: I'll just stay in with Demeter, or at least the Demeter chapter of the book for a minute. There's um there's like a bunch of guys on Twitter who are like fundamentally like white supremacists who have like Greek statues in their avatars and they do this whole like, Why can't we do this anymore? And it's a picture of a cathedral or whatever. And um and the other one they do regularly is like, Why can't we do this anymore? And it's some Greek sculpture. And it's always <laughs> the Benini, it's always the rating yes. subpoena because to be fair, they have a point. You know, this is a, an absolutely astonishing sculpture. Tell us about It is an astonishing
0: it. sculpture. And yeah, the, the really upsetting thing for those of us who are well past it is that Bernini did it when he was, I think, 23. So anytime you're 24 or over and asking why people in general can't do this kind of thing anymore, <laughs> the question you should be asking yourself is, why haven't I already made this? I mean, I think the short answer is, if we want to look at their question seriously, is that Benini would have been apprenticed as a child to a, a master sculptor. And so he would have, been, now we prefer not to, you know, ask children to work. We, we like them to go to school and get an education and not be in a, you know, a craftsman's studio where heavy bits of marble might fall on them and injure them, or they might inhale you know stone dust or marble dust but and the, then die at, you know at the age of 25 mm-hmm. with battered lungs or whatever so generally i am in favor of a world in which we are slightly more <laughs> caring about children and slightly you know we, it may mean we don't get as many beninas at the age of 23 but i like to think we might get sculptors with a, a longer life but the rape of Proserpina, um, which is the roman name for persephone is an absolutely astonishing work of art and it is extremely difficult to look at in some ways and yet it's impossible to look away because it is extraordinary so it shows Hades who here is presented virtually naked there's a, a robe sliding off Proserpina to cover his genitalia because presumably the um, Italian nobleman who uh, had commissioned it wouldn't have wanted to see anything as risque as male genitalia. But I guess he's Pluto here rather than Hades because I always tend to go for Greek names. But he should be Roman, and he is—you know—he's a strong, athletic man. He's holding all his weight, and indeed, Proserpina's on one foot; the other foot is is trailing out like a dancer's, and she is squirming to get away from him. Um, and he looks so strong—it's not just the muscles that are beautifully and perfectly delineated it's the fact that you can see the veins on the muscles you know you can see the tendons pulling as he takes this extra weight of another person and it's an extraordinary if it were just that it would be extraordinary but in his arms is Proserpina, and she is struggling to get away there's a desperately sad moment that she has a a tiny marble tear rolling down one cheek and we can see that she's struggling to get away because her hand, the heel of her hand is pushing into Pluto's face. His whole face is being pushed away from her body because she's so desperate to get his touch off her. We can see, looking at the statue, what she can't see but can presumably hear, which is that uh, Cerberus, the three-headed dog, is snapping at her feet. So even if she did manage to wriggle free of this powerful, athletic man's grip, she still wouldn't be safe. He's got, you know, horrible gnashing teeth. And what's extraordinary about it is that Pluto's hands sink into her flesh in a way that almost defies understanding. As a viewer of the sculpture, you're looking at it thinking, "But it's made of marble. How can this flesh, his flesh, look so strong and powerful, and her flesh look so soft and powerless?" When they're both made of marble, how did you do that? How are you 23? And how did you do that? And his fingers are pressing into her thigh. You can see the flesh dimpling. And then they press into the edge of her waist and you can see the flesh just roll over it. So, it's so extraordinary. And yet, you know, it, it's depicting the kidnap of a, a young woman who's about to be forced into marriage. So it's, it's both beautiful and horrible in equal measure. And I guess I'm not sure if I would like more sculpture to fit into that category than we've already had, but I would say a sculptor is going to have to work for an awfully long time with an incredible quantity of genius talent to be able to do anything close to what Benigni could do there. I I say this in the book and I, I never don't mean it. I honestly, when I look at it, I wonder if it might have been easier to find a way to turn a real person to stone, than to look at a block of marble and see that this was inside it, I I cannot understand how it was done. It's just a it's just an extraordinary work of art.
1: And um, just one more thing, then. Then, as as we've um we've talked about Demeter for most of the show. So um, sorry about We're going to knock out a few um a few goddesses on. in, in one go here. Let's do so it. You talk about you talk about Aphrodite. There's a chapter about Aphrodite, and she has, shall we say, a, a rather robust attitude towards casual sex
0: doesn't she just but um
1: there's then a trio a whole trio of goddesses who just aren't interested at all so let's talk about those three and why not
0: well um it's i find it really interesting that of the olympian goddesses of whom there are six um hestia is often overlooked uh there's no definitive canon list of olympian gods and goddesses by the way it's always changing but the the biggest names tend to be (laughs) uh aphrodite hera Athene, Artemis, Hestia, Demeter. And Artemis and Hestia and Athene are all virginal. So fully half of the kind of big six shun any kind of sexual relationship. And that seems to me fascinating. It's like these goddesses were being created and worshipped at a time of really overwhelming patriarchy. And it's like, well, Did people realize, did men realize that if women had enough power, they might not be interested in men? (laughs) Or is it just that they're so powerful, they're not like normal women, and so they can do whatever they like, you know, not have sexual partners. You know, obviously, women in, let's say, fifth century Athens had absolutely no say in who they did or didn't marry, or indeed, what happened to them within that marriage. Uh, So perhaps it's the difference that they're exacerbating but they are virginal in really different ways. So Artemis is the goddess of trackless places, of the woods, of the forests, of the mountains. And she shuns men almost because she chooses to live the life of a a young man, a hunter. Uh, Animals are sacred to her, but so are young girls. Uh, When young girls are married, which in ancient Greece happened at a lot younger age than we'd probably like, they often sacrifice or left a a doll as a symbol of childhood for Artemis at a temple. Or a figurine, uh, but sometimes jointed dolls, really interesting. And so she is responsible for these sort of moments in girls' and women's lives, but she herself doesn't want the life of a, a regular. Greek woman in a city and society. She shuns it. Uh, She very much belongs to the not cities, to the trackless places. Um, Athene is famously virginal, a goddess of defensive war and war strategy, of weaving, of handicrafts. She's clever. Um, She springs fully formed from the head of Zeus because Zeus had, of course, consumed her mother Metis while Metis was pregnant with Athene. So uh, she says in uh, Aeschylus' play, Eumenides, that she doesn't have a mother. She does, in fact, have a mother. Uh, but Zeus consumes her whole. And so she seems just generally not at all interested in men and sex. She's interested, again, in quite masculine things like war. The real surprise is Hestia, who is the goddess of the hearth. She'll become Vesta in Roman worship, who's better known perhaps because of the Vestal Virgins who tended to her sacred flame um, and who were a big part of Roman civic religion from Augustus onwards, well, from long before them, centuries before them. But I think we tend to know about examples from Augustus onwards. And she is the goddess of the hearth, so she's super domestic. And you would think that she would therefore be married or at least have some sort of relationship or children or something like that, but not a bit of it. She manages to turn down offers from uh, other gods who are interested in her, male gods who are interested in marrying her, which is a difficult thing to do, by the way with male gods, especially Olympian gods who are normally incredibly thin-skinned egomaniacs. So it's a high-risk strategy. But she manages not to fall out with anybody. And then we're told, again, in one of the Homeric hymns, that she lives with Hermes as a sort of, in like a flat chair. (laughs) Sorry, what just happened? And they're beautifully matched, of course, because Hermes famously can go anywhere. You know, he's the messenger god. So he moves between states, between the immortal and mortal realm between the realms of the living and the realm of the dead. He can go down to the underworld, not a problem. So he is always in motion. And she is always still at the center of the house. And for the Greeks, the phrase to begin with Hestia or to start from Hestia, means to begin at the beginning, to start start from the very beginning. So she is properly the essence of of Greek worship, both in a private house and in a civic setting, and yet somehow we kind of forgot about her. I think once Dionysus comes along, he's just too showy. He's got the wine, he's got the theatre. So, yeah, game over for Hestia, sadly.
1: So, I've been talking to Natalie Haynes. We've been talking about her latest book, Divine Might Goddesses in Greek Myth. Natalie, thanks again for coming in and telling me about it.
0: Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented, and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.